Hello, my name is Pam Johnson, and the next talk will be on multi-detector CT of abdominal and pelvic vascular emergencies. Prompt recognition of vascular pathology is really critical for optimizing patient management. Ideally, when the patient is still in the department, if the vascular pathology is identified, um, but in many, in many in, uh, instances, vascular pathology may not be suspected. Um, and this, this plays into both the, t um, the protocol design as well, because if vascular pathology is suspected, then we tailor the protocol accordingly, and I'll discuss that in a minute. But very important to understand the f how image display using multiplanar reconstructions aids in our ability to identify vascular pathology, also using 3D rendering, and the typical findings that are critical to diagnosis in these patients. So the different types of pathology that I'm going to review in this talk are various arterial pathologies involving um, mesenteric arteries, the abdominal aorta and branches, as well as the pelvic arteries, femoral arteries, and then a range of venous pathology from thrombus um, involving the mesenteric veins, again, the renal veins, gonadal veins, and the pelvic and lower extremity veins. I'll speak very briefly about hemorrhage um, and the importance of protocol design in identifying hemorrhage, in particular gastrointestinal bleeding. So if vascular pathology is suspected, um, then we would prefer to perform the study without positive oral contrast. However, in many cases, patient has abdominal pain and a routine study is done with oral and IV contrast in the venous phase. Um, the utility of negative oral contrast agents is that it increase, the absence of positive oral contrast helps us to identify active bleeding. Positive oral contrast will obscure gastrointestinal hemorrhage, of course, and we, it's uh, the 3D renderings with MIP and volume rendering are ideally performed without positive oral contrast. So we, in our practice, we actually administer water for many, many indications that in the past we would have performed with positive oral contrast, including in some patients with small bowel obstruction. Um, so what are the indications for two-phase imaging in a patient with suspected vascular pathology? Um, you could just perform an arterial phase scan for aortic aneurysm, but if, um, if, there are suspect, if there are the following settings, you may perform dual phase imaging for a number of different reasons. Um, a patient who has an acute drop in hematocrit uh, would, would if, you, if we administer IV contrast, we often do two phase imaging to identify hemorrhage, it increases our ability to identify active bleeding. Similarly, for GI bleeding, for bowel ischemia, patient with elevated serum lactate, um, or the clinical findings of pain out of proportion to physical exam, we do two-phase imaging for evaluating arterial and venous phase of the mesenteric um, vasculature to identify potential causes for mesenteric ischemia. Patients with genetic syndromes may have artery may have aneurysms or dissections, including vascular Ehlers-Danlos, and these patients can present with um, acute vascular emergencies, including acute dissection or aneurysm rupture. Here's uh, several patients with vascular Ehlers-Danlos 
illustrating dissection in the aorta, aneurysms in the iliac arteries, and then some mesenteric aneurysms. Some of the pearls with respect to two-phase imaging and, and the utility of it is that two phases increase the sensitivity to identify IV contrast extravasation. Uh, as I mentioned in my talk on protocol design, large aneurysms often require time to fully opacify, and uh, you c it can be mistaken that there is arterial thr branch thrombus if a large aneurysm has not completely opacified. You may not see active bleeding from a large aortic aneurysm on an early arterial phase if the aneurysm is very large. Pseudoaneurysms, particularly those that arise from the gastroduodenal artery, also have, um, may have delayed enhancement and may be most conspicuous on a venous acquisition. They're su often supplied by small arteries, and I'll show some examples of that. So just a nice example of a patient with active bleeding from the left colon, you can see that there's an increase in the amount of contrast extravasated from the arterial to the venous phase. We did a study actually recently that um, where we looked at all of the arterial, all of our patients with GI bleeding who had correlative arteriography, and we found that in most patients, the bleed was actually more conspicuous with a higher volume of extravasated contrast on the venous phase. In all cases, there was a difference in the amount of blood that was extravasated between the arterial and venous phases. So we do not perform a non-contrast scan in these patients. We can identify active bleeding because it changes in morphology from arterial to venous phase without the need for a pre-contrast scan to exclude some other high-density material in the bowel lumen. The other advantage is that this provides information about the rate of bleeding. If there's a large change from the arterial to the venous phase, this patient is bleeding at a very fast rate. The use of 3D rendering is really very important for vascular imaging. It, it maximizes the ability to identify subtle vascular abnormalities and also to evaluate the extent of disease. So in our practice, we perform interactive 2D um, multiplanar reformations, maximum intensity projection, and volume rendering at a dedicated 3D workstation for all vascular imaging. In, we, we have published one study that showed the importance of multiplanar reconstructions for evaluating the mesenteric vasculature in a study where we compared our 3D interpretations, which are performed by a radiologist at an independent uh, 3D workstation compared to the standard axial interpretation, we found that the axial CT missed important mesenteric arterial pathology in 66% of cases. And this was a retrospective study, but by chart review, we were able to determine that, that in 15% of the subjects, these mesenteric lesions required some change in the patient's management. So very important to be looking at the celiac and the SMA and the portal venous system and the mesenteric venous system on the coronal and sagittal NPRs. Okay, moving on to the different types of pathology. I'm going to start with uh, superior mesenteric artery thrombus. And important to recognize that these patients may have ambiguous symptomatology and this may not be suspected, but it is a diagnosis that cannot be missed because of the risk of intestinal ischemia and infarction and the high mortality associated with that. 
SMA thrombus is more often secondary to an embolism, and of those patients that have an embolic source, half of them will have a cardiac thrombus, and a large percentage of them have atrial fibrillation. If the source is an embolism, it is more likely to be located distally in the SMA, and you may see synchronous emboli to the kidneys, to the spleen. In the majority of patients, this aids in, in making the determination that that the cause was embolic as opposed to a primary SMA thrombus. Primary SMA occlusion, on the other hand, often results in more extensive intestinal infarction. So an example of an SMA thrombus on the axial images, first uh, set of slices through the proximal artery, thrombus is not seen, the artery looks completely normal, um, s slightly lower in the volume, the arterial is the artery is not enhancing normally. You can also see that there is mesenteric venous gas in this case. So this is a case of SMA thrombus with ischemic bowel, and the bowel itself has a, there's some wall thickening of the small bowel loops, but there's no pneumatosis. However, there is mesenteric venous gas. So um, inspection of both the arteries and veins is really critical for these patients to fully characterize the severity, the severity of their condition. Here's a patient with SMA thrombus from ca cardiac origin. Again, the SMA looks normal proximally and distally. It's not enhancing very well, but this is a difficult diagnosis to make on axial images. When, once you get to the small branches that don't, generally don't enhance extremely brightly. However, on a coronal NPR, multiple segments of of thrombus are identified in the distal SMA in this patient who had a cardiac thrombus that showered emboli. Moving on to mesenteric artery dissection, the, a patient may have an isolated celiac or SMA dissection in the absence of an aortic dissection. More commonly in the SMA, in 10% of patients, both arteries may be involved. So there are two sort of variations on this pathology. Patients with an acute mesenteric artery dissection who present with abdominal pain are, are patients who need urgent emergent management. However, in practice, we have recognized that we often see celiac artery dissections in patients who are being imaged for cancer follow-up or other indications with no symptoms of abdominal pain. Those patients are treated, um, do, not, do not need treatment. The findings are often found to be stable, and I'll discuss that in a, in a few minutes. Here's the patient with an acute mesenteric artery dissection. You can see the dissection flat proximally as well as a pseudoaneurysm in this patient with abdominal pain. This is not a diagnostic dilemma. This is clearly the patient who needs to be um, to undergo either endovascular or surgical management emergently for treatment of this of this because of the risk of rupture as well as, well as uh, vascular occlusion and bowel ischemia. Different causes for mesenteric dissection include um, isolated spontaneous dissection. It can be post-traumatic. Patients with vasculitis, segmental arterial mediolysis, FMD, are all um, have a higher risk of developing dissections. Atherosclerosis can result in a dissection also patients with connective tissue disorder and Ehlers-Danlos. 
One thing that radiologists can do to help in guiding the management of this patient is to identify other findings indicative of vasculitis. So as we see in this patient, you can see there's beating and narrowing of the SMA, classic appearance for vasculitis. And in a patient with a dissection and these findings, we can point to the diagnosis. Here's a pa another patient with a dissection of the, um, of the SMA, as well as areas of beating and narrowing because of underlying vasculitis as the cause. And this is a nice example showing you the, the utility of MIP rendering on the left and volume rendering on the right for nicely elucidating these findings. The complications, as I mentioned, bowel ischemia, um, as well as distal microvascular emboli. So for acute dissection, treatment may include conservative management if the lumen of the artery is not compromised and the patient does not have any of the, of the complications such as a secondary pseudoaneurysm. Patients may be anticoagulated or observed with serial imaging. If there is significant luminal narrowing or true lumen malperfusion, if the artery has dilated or there's a pseudoaneurysm, if the false lumen expands over time, patient has ischemia or persistent symptoms, these are all indications for intervention. The first line intervention in some cases is stenting, most effective if performed really early in the clinical course because the dissection is mobile at that point and can be moved by the force of the stent. Surgical repair may be indicated if, if it's a very complicated case with a large pseudoaneurysm or if their stent is attempted and was, and was not successful, if there's evidence of end organ injury or aneurysmal degeneration. So here's an example of a patient that where there was an attempted treatment with a stent. As you can see, there is still a large pseudoaneurysm and the patient was required to then undergo surgical repair. The second type of patient with mesenteric arterial dissection and in particular celiac dissection are the patients where it's an incidental finding, they have no symptoms, and we've seen this in, in our practice. So we looked at all of the patients who had uh, dissection reported on CT and found that it was more common in the celiac. The majority of them were asymptomatic and by record review we determined that only only three of the 13 who had symptoms were the symptoms attributed to the dissection. So of the asymptomatic patients where this was an incidental finding, if they had follow-up study, 92% of them remained unchanged on follow-up CT. Um, and in some cases, they actually resolved. So the incidental dissection in the asymptomatic patient, if you have an old CT, of course, it's very helpful to confirm that it's stable, but these are um, typically f incidental findings that do not require management. Here's an example of a small celiac dissection. One thing that we do see with these is associated aneurysmal dilatation in some cases. And if you see aneurysmal dilatation and you look closely, you may then find the small dissection flap. Here's a patient with um, an incidental SMA dissection. Okay, moving on to visceral artery aneurysms. So these are often diagnosed incidentally in asymptomatic patients, especially with the improved resolution of our current generation CT scanners, both the spatial and contrast resolution enable us to see small aneurysms. In many cases, they're, best, they're better visualized 
on multiplanar reconstructions depending on the orientation of the artery. Um, the patient may present with the complication of rupture, which is, of course, associated with a high rate of morbidity and mortality. Visceral artery aneurysms most commonly involve the splenic artery, but they can involve all of the abdominal arteries. And I'll show you some examples. Here's a splenic artery aneurysm in the region of the distal pancreas, celiac artery aneurysm. In many cases, you may see aneurysmal dilatation of the celiac artery in a patient with median arcuate ligament compression, causing stenosis and post-stenotic aneurysmal dilatation. Here's a patient who's presented with um, a ruptured aneurysm and a large mesenteric hematoma. In distinction are uh, mesenteric pseudoaneurysms. This is a different type of pathology. This is a uh, interventional emergency. Pseudoaneurysms are, unlike, unlike um, real aneurysms, are not enclosed by three layers of the arterial wall. They may only be enclosed by the adventitia, for example, and so they have a much higher risk of rupture. The most common setting for these in the mesenteric region is pancreatitis, which often affects the splenic and gastroduodenal arteries. Other causes include surgery, trauma, iatrogenic. Unlike true aneurysms, which are often unsuspected findings, these may be, these patients almost always have symptoms, they have pain, they may have GI bleeding, um, and it's important to recognize that small and large pseudoaneurysms both carry a risk of rupture. Untreated mortality rate approaches 90 percent. So this is a finding that requires emergent intervention. The symptoms include pain, melana, they may have hemorrhage into the pancreatic duct or hematemesis. So I'll show you some examples. Unlike the small true, true aneurysms that I showed earlier, here's a, here's a patient with hematoma surrounding a ruptured splenic artery pseudoaneurysm. They often have surrounding hematoma um, or hemorrhage within the mesentery. Another patient who had pancreatitis, and in the setting of pancreatitis, this should be suspected to be a pseudoaneurysm, even if it's small, and keep in mind that even the small pseudoaneurysms are at risk for rupture. Really nicely shown on the coronal volume rendering, demonstrating how, how useful these are for demonstrating vascular pathology. Here is a complicated patient that has both a gastroduodenal pseudoaneurysm and a large thrombus in the portal vein. So we always perform dual phase imaging in patients with pancreatitis who have suspected complications. Um, and he, here's the importance of also evaluating the venous structures in patients who have a source of potential hemorrhage. Patient with gastroduodenal pseudoaneurysm Due to pancreatitis, you can see pancreatic ductal dilatation, peripancreatic fluid and inflammation on the axial image, and the pseudoaneurysm on the coronal image on the right. Another patient with a, a smaller gastroduodenal artery pseudoaneurysm due to pancreatitis. And as I mentioned earlier, some of these gastroduodenal artery pseudoaneurysms enhance more on the venous phase. So look very carefully on both arterial and venous acquisitions in these patients. As you can see, the aneurysm doubled in enhancement level from the arterial to the venous phase because it is supplied by small arteries. 
this, in this GDA pseudoaneurysm. Another patient with a large GDA pseudoaneurysm certainly would not be missed, but just demonstrates the principle that the enhancement level is often very higher on the venous phase, so a smaller pseudoaneurysm actually could potentially be missed if only arterial phase imaging is used. And I show this case as the importance of really carefully inspecting a non-contrast CT in patients with pancreatitis. At times, we are asked to image patients with pancreatitis um, who are very sick in the hospital without administering IV contrast. And it's important to recognize that if you see hemorrhage, high-density material in the region of the pancreas on the non-contrast CT, as shown in the image on the left, the presence of hemorrhage alone should raise your concern that there's a pseudoaneurysm. In this case, the hemorrhage is surrounding a low-density area, which could be potentially interpreted as a pseudocyst, but when contrast was administered, it was shown that the low-density area was actually a large pseudoaneurysm. So recognize hemorrhage on a non-contrast CT in this setting may be the indicative of a pseudoaneurysm. These can also occur postoperatively, as in this case of hepatic artery pseudoaneurysm in a patient who had undergone recent surgery. Here's a patient who had undergone recent renal surgery with a pseudoaneurysm and perinephric hematoma. And in this case, the patient was treated with endovascular coiling. Um, I show this case because it's, it's unusual, but it really emphasizes the importance of using water for oral contrast if there's any suspicion for a vascular pathology. So in this case, patient was transferred from another hospital and was imaged with oral and IV contrast. On the outside CT, you can see multiple bowel loops filled with oral contrast, and the finding is really not very conspicuous. I won't show you just yet. Just give you a second to look at the case and see if you can see the mesenteric pseudoaneurysm. Looks a lot like a bowel loop on this set of images, but here it is. And if you look on the coronal, you may appreciate that there is some mesenteric stranding around the pseudoaneurysm. Still, it's a very unusual appearance for pseudoaneurysm. It is almost completely thrombosed, but with a small amount of perfusion. So the patient was transferred with this set of images and was rescanned. And um, in our department at some later time when the oral contrast had all moved to the large bowel, and you can see how much more obvious the finding is within the mesentery as an abnormal finding now that the small bowel loops are, are no longer pacified by positive oral contrast. Okay, moving from the mesentery to the kidneys, renal artery thrombosis is most commonly due to thromboembolic disease, but may be due to underlying renal artery pathology, particularly patients who have FMD or who have either a traumatic or spontaneous renal artery dissection, and also patients with hypercoagulability are at an elevated risk for developing this. The finding is usually very apparent as a segment of the renal artery that is not enhancing in association with well-defined geographic region of decreased enhancement within the kidney. However, in some cases, early in the course of, the, of a renal infarct, the finding may not be very obvious. So I show you um, baseline images on this patient. If you look closely on the coronal, you will, on the coronal NPR, you can 
see that there is slightly decreased enhancement in the lower pole of the right kidney. This would be very difficult to appreciate on the axial images because there is still some corticomedullary differentiation. However, when we compare the baseline to the follow-up, you can see how much more conspicuous the finding is. Over time, now that the infarcted part of the kidney has become somewhat atrophic with even less enhancement. This is an interesting case of a patient that was imaged in the emergency department with suspected appendicitis because of right flank pain. And the salient finding on the abdominal images is a large area of a large lower pole right renal infarct. Now on an abdominal CT, you may include the lower part of the heart and once an infarct is identified, it's critical to take a close look at the heart because there's a, a very high probability that that's the source as shown in this case. You can see the thrombus in the heart. This, this was a large mobile thrombus, not your typical thrombus that's pretty, that's well adherent to the wall like we usually see within a ventricle, but it was a large mobile thrombus and the patient had a secondary uh, renal infarct. So if you see a renal infarct, you've only inspected the scan, you have not completely inspected the scan, you must take a close look and look for emboli in other locations and look for emboli in the heart, in the visualized portion of the heart. Um, and um, patients may actually go on for echocardiography if the entire heart's not imaged to exclude a cardiac source. So a little bit more about this interesting case. The patient was managed with, um, with heparin, admitted to the hospital, developed acute pain three days later. Re-imaging, we can see the thrombus is no longer in the heart. But the patient has even more emboli, emboli throughout the kidneys. There's ischemia in the liver. Um, the patient actually had some small emboli in the distal SMA, but had no bowel ischemia, no, no uh, neurovascular compromise, and actually was discharged several days later. So critical point to evaluate the heart in the setting of any suspected embolic disease. The abdominal aorta actually um, is uh, abdominal aortic thrombus is not something that we see commonly, but it, it, it can occur, particularly in patients with aneurysmal disease or an underlying dissection or severe atherosclerosis. And of course, the complications, limb and visceral ischemia, stroke, or embolization. So I'll show a few cases. Um, here's a an example of a large distal aortic thrombus. This is not something that you would ever confuse with mural plaque. It's located centrally within the lumen and it's extending into the iliac arteries. Um, uh, this is an acute uh, abnormality requiring emergent intervention. Here's another case with a somewhat ill-defined thrombus in the aorta and complete occlusion of the superior mesenteric artery and an associated renal infarct. Femoral artery occlusion um, is most commonly, actually unlike renal infarcts, most commonly thrombotic, but can also be embolic in origin. But um, the femoral artery is the most common peripheral segment for an acute embolic occlusion. So if it is an embolic source, it, it often lodges within the femoral artery um, as the most peripheral location. And of course, the acute femoral artery occlusion is an 
is an emergent um, situation that requires either thrombectomy or embolectomy. Patients present with classic symptoms of the six Ps. Um, and here's a nice example and the importance of multiplanar reconstructions. When we do uh, our arterial phase imaging, the veins, of course, will not be enhanced. And it's important to recognize that after the profundofemoral artery branch, you may be looking at an unenhanced superficial femoral artery and not a vein and look very closely, um, follow the arterial segments in a patient with any kind of symptoms or suspected um, femoral artery occlusion. But these findings are really well demonstrated on the multiplanar reconstructions as in this case. So this is an occlusive femoral artery thrombus that is a, a, an interventional or surgical emergency. Okay, I'm moving on to venous pathology. Um, I'd like to take a minute to talk about technique and, the pro and use of proper timing. Also, it's just so important to have the mesenteric and pelvic veins in your search pattern because these are findings that you do not want to miss. They require urgent management, either through anticoagulation or potentially even surgery. These thrombi in these locations are best seen on the NPRs, particularly in the portal confluence and the splenic vein and the SMV. It's important to understand the appearance of thrombus even on a pre-contrast CT because you may have a non-contrast scan, but you can still see acute thrombus in some cases. And um, it's also important to distinguish true thrombus from pseudothrombus. So in the superior mesenteric vein, pseudothrombus is seen if, if the scan's performed in a late arterial phase, you must wait at least 60 seconds for to evaluate the mesenteric veins because they, they take a little bit of time to fully enhance. If you're evaluating inferior vena cava, you use a 90-second delay and then 120 seconds for the lower extremity veins. This is a nice example of pseudothrombus in the superior mesenteric vein on the arterial phase scan, coronal image on the left, but on a venous phase, the vein enhances completely. Inferior vena cava is an area that's difficult to evaluate um, un unless you have a really adequate delay of even more than 60 seconds in many cases. This is a left-sided inferior vena cava that is not enhanced simply because of the timing of the scan. And as we know from practice, the renal veins will fill the inferior vena cava um, above this before the inferior portion of the IVC enhances. One of the pitfalls that's been described in the literature is pseudothrombus due to fat adjacent to the inferior vena cava. So if you see what looks like very low density thrombus in this segment of the IVC, take a good look at the sagittal NPR. You may just be volume averaging adjacent fat on the axial image. NPRs are, are helpful to distinguish pseudothrombus from real thrombus, and they're also helpful to visualize um, help us to actually identify thrombi. And I'll show you in, by some exam case examples in a few minutes. Before um, I, I do show you some examples, I want to emphasize the importance of understanding that you can see acute thrombus on a non-contrast CT. It appears as hyperdense filling of the lumen. So the portal vein should be the same density of, as the aorta on a non-contrast scan. 
If it is in the range of 70 Hounsfield units, you should be suspicious of thrombus if it's much higher than the aorta. And it should be confirmed, of course, with either ultrasound, CT, or MR. If the patient has renal insufficiency, you can do a non-contrast MR or an ultrasound. And in this case, this was a patient who was early post-op. It was suspected, and contrast was administered. And you can see there's a large thrombus on the contrast scan, filling the portal confluence and the main portal vein. Here's a patient who was also recently post-op with abdominal pain. And in my experience, when you see this kind of mesenteric stranding that's isolated to one portion of the mesentery, look very closely for, um, for associated mesenteric vein thrombus. You can see on this case that the SMV and its branches are very bright. They measured as high as 55 Hounsfield units, and this was all thrombus confirmed by ultrasound. So do carefully inspect these venous structures on a non-contrast scan um, and look for this, these high levels of enhancement may be indicative of an underlying clot. Moving on to portal vein thrombus, patients um, may have variable symptoms. They may, it may be unsuspected. In many cases, it's unsuspected. Um, and so it's something that you need to be cognizant of, particularly in patients with risk factors, which include cirrhosis, Patients with pan, um, pancreatic tumors often have a portal vein thrombus, or um, pancreatitis, cholangitis, hypercoagulable states. And postoperatively, this is something that you should be looking for very carefully. For example, in liver transplant patients, patients who have had Whipple procedure, portal vein surgery. Complications if the thrombus is not treated, patients can develop portal hypertension varices and other manifestations of portal hypertension. So here's three different patients with portal vein thrombus. You can see it can involve the intrahepatic portal veins. It can involve the main portal vein as a non-occlusive thrombus. And then the third image shows a large occlusive thrombus. So if you do see it, be sure to describe the location and whether it's occlusive or non-occlusive. Superior mesenteric vein thrombus has a similar set of risk factors to portal vein thrombus um, and carries a, a high risk of developing bowel ischemia. So this is a diagnosis that you do not want to miss. Here's an example of a patient with cecal diverticulitis and superior mesenteric vein thrombophlebitis. Not only is the vein thrombosed, there's a, a great deal of inflammation surrounding it, so this is also infected. Um, this is a potential complication of sigmoid diverticulitis, but in that case, it involves the inferior mesenteric vein. So always carefully inspect the IMV in a patient with acute diverticulitis. It is not a very common complication, but it is an important complication not to miss. As I've mentioned earlier in the talk, MPRs are so helpful for identifying SMV and splenic vein thrombus and delineating the extent uh, I've seen a number of cases where I only really recognized a splenic vein clot when I looked at the coronal MPR. Um, it's helpful to also demonstrate the extent of thrombus as shown in this case, um, a small non-occlusive thrombus within the SMV. Um, 
rarely you may see thrombus within a small branch of the SMV and this was an interesting case of a patient who had come, this was the third trip to the ER with postoperative abdominal pain in this patient, right lower quadrant pain. And if you look very closely, you can see that this small mesenteric vein branch was thrombosed. And there was some possible pneumatosis in the right colon. The lactate level was elevated. The patient was treated with anticoagulation and the symptoms resolved. So do look carefully at the branches, particularly in patients with persistent pain or unusual pain in, a, in an elevated lactate level. Here is an example of an IMV thrombus. This is not a very common um, location for thrombus, but it can occur. And the patients who are at risk for it include those with clotting disorders, those who have undergone surgery, as I mentioned, sigmoid or descending colon diverticulitis. And it also can occur in patients with tumor invasion of the IMV. So patients who have either mesenteric or arterial vascular thrombus, um, feared complication is bowel ischemia. And even with surgery, um, there's a high mortality if the patient has developed ischemic or infarcted bowel. So here's an example of a patient with portal vein thrombus on a non-contrast CT. As you can see, there's high density in the portal vein. This is a patient who could not get IV contrast. And some really important findings on this non-contrast scan included pneumatosis in the right colon, as you can see on the third image, as well as blood in the lumen of the colon. So that high-density material in the lumen was not IV contrast. That's acute blood because this is ischemic bowel. There was extensive ischemic bowel at surgery. So another example of a non-contrast CT, you need to look very closely at these. Patients are often critically ill. You may see findings that reflect some very, very severe pathology. Splenic vein thrombus, predisposition similar to the other mesenteric venous segments, pancreatitis, adenocarcinoma. And one important caveat is that Patients who have neuroendocrine tumor of the pancreas, neuroendocrine tumor invades the splenic vein in a third of the patients. You may, it may be microscopic or macroscopic. It is most commonly the splenic vein. So if you see a mass in the pancreas and it's encasing and narrowing the vein, that's a feature of adenocarcinoma. If it is invading the vein with tumor thrombus, that is a feature of neuroendocrine tumor. Again, it is often unsuspected and it is often better seen on the coronal NPR as shown in this case. Just much more easy to recognize in this patient with metastatic disease. Another patient better seen on the coronal, tailored coronal NPR. Um, okay, moving on to hepatic vein thrombus carrying the risk of Bud Chiari syndrome. One of the pitfalls is that if you image the liver at 50 seconds or 55 seconds, the hepatic veins may not be filled. You do not want to mistake that for hepatic vein thrombus. In hepatic vein thrombus, there's also abnormal enhancement of the periphery of the liver with hyperenhancement of the caudate and the central liver. It enha enhances heterogeneously. You may see collaterals if it is long-standing. The hepatic enhancement follows a characteristic pattern in hepatic vein thrombosis. In the acute phase, there's preferential arterial enhancement of the caudate. On the portal venous phase, you will see heterogeneous enhancement throughout the liver with low attenuation bands that are reflect areas of infarction. So here's a nice example. We see preferential central enhancement on the arterial phase and very heterogeneous enhancement 
on the Venus and delayed phase. These are the f this is the constellation of findings that you see in true hepatic vein thrombosis and Bud Chiari syndrome. Inferior vena cava thrombus um, is can present with a, a range of of symptoms depending on the extent and the location, from flank pain to hematuria, and the physical findings include everything from leg swelling to diminished renal function. There's a long list of risk factors, primarily related to hypercoagulability, but also in postoperative patients or patients with underlying malignancy. Uh, we always want to look closely at the inferior vena cava. As I mentioned, some of the um, potential complications include renal insufficiency as well as neuropathy and cardiac failure. So it's um, in addition to the risk of embolic disease from the thrombus. So I'll show you some examples. This is real thrombus superior to pseudothrombus in the lower portion of the inferior vena cava. And the timing is critical. As I mentioned, you have to wait at least 90 seconds to fully opacify the inferior vena cava. Here's an example of a thrombus extending from the iliac vein into the lower inferior vena cava. If there's any question from um, if your venous phase is too early uh, and you're, there's a suspicion for this, you should perform a delayed acquisition. Renal vein thrombus. Um, some of the risk factors, nephrotic syndrome, hypercoagulable states. Of course, renal cell carcinoma can invade the renal vein, um, and in which case you'll see tumor thrombus with enhancement within the clot. Patients who have bland renal vein thrombosis can present with pain, hematuria, and renal infarcts, but it may be chronic and insidious, in which case it is uh, asymptomatic or unsuspected. It can be unilateral or bilateral, and it's important to delineate the extent of clot. Here's a patient with bland left renal vein thrombus involving the, almost the entire length of the left renal vein. And in comparison, here's the patient with renal vein thrombus due to renal cell carcinoma. You can see enhancement within the tumor thrombus similar to the enhancement within the tumor. Important finding that you do not want to miss is pelvic and lower extremity clot because of the risk of pulmonary embolism. Always carefully inspect the veins. Um, sometimes the scans are performed too early and mixing artifact precludes a really good evaluation of these venous segments, but if you see some asymmetry, as in this case, with decreased enhancement of the left femoral vein and stranding surrounding the left femoral vein, this is acute thrombus in May-Turner syndrome. I've seen a couple cases of May-Turner syndrome. What's very interesting about it is that the vein is often expanded with stranding surrounding the vein, and you can see the difference in size of the lower extremities with enlargement of the left thigh. These patients, of course, have risk for pulmonary embolism, as shown in this case in the right lower lobe. And the cause is compression of that left common iliac vein as it courses posterior to the aorta. Um, very rarely, you may see vein within the internal iliac vein, as in this case, there's right internal iliac vein thrombus in a patient with pulmonary embolism. Gonadal vein thrombus is something that um, we should be looking for in postpartum patients who have pain, in which case it's more common on the right side and more common after C-section as opposed to standard delivery, but it is also um, 
may be identified in patients with pelvic surgery, hypercoagulability. Um, patients who have had the ovaries removed will often have thrombus within the segment of the gonadal vein. That's not an uncommon finding. Um, I always report it. The management varies. It's, it's somewhat of a different entity than, than uh, acute gonadal vein thrombus in a patient who has not haven't had an oophorectomy. Those patients require treatment. There's a, a risk of pulmonary embolism of 13% in these patients. So here's a patient with acute long segment gonadal vein thrombus. This is not an area that I think people have in their search pattern, but it is an area that should be evaluated because there is a small risk of pulmonary embolism. Okay, I'm just gonna speak for a few minutes about hemorrhage, abdominal pelvic hemorrhage. It, um, of course, this is a critical diagnosis. Patient, maybe a trauma patient, an anticoagulated patient. Other risk factors include um, underlying malignancy, aneurysm, or postoperative patient. And the symptoms range from vague symptoms to hemodynamic instability. CT is the imaging modality of choice in these patients. Protocol design is critical. And recognizing hemorrhage and its location are um, essential for facilitating clinical management. As I mentioned earlier, <coughs> pre-contrast CT is not required unless you're suspecting uh, an aortic intramural hematoma or it's an early post-operative scan after aortic root repair. For abdominal imaging, water should be imaged, uh, water should be administered so that you do not obscure GI bleeding. We infuse contrast at a high rate. We perform scan timing with bolus tracking. If the arterial acquisition appears too early, a second acquisition may be necessary. Here's an example of a patient with um, active bleeding that is only identified on the venous phase acquisition into a large hematoma. Patient with GI bleeding, you see the increase in contrast extravasation from arterial to venous phases as I've shown you earlier. And here's another example, patient with a bleeding uh, cecal diverticulum, an increased hemorrhage accumulation in the lumen from the arterial to the venous phase. Hemorrhage can be seen on a non-contrast scan. So if patients image without contrast, there are features that you should be looking for. Of course, layering blood products within pelvic ascites, one of the key findings in hemorrhage. But hemorrhage can be seen as high density, um, a hematoma surrounding transplant kidney, as in this case. Patient could not get contrast, but they performed ultrasound and identified a pseudoaneurysm, which was the source of bleeding in this case. Psoas muscles, common location for hemorrhage, and the hemorrhage can be identified on non-contrast CT when you see these, this layering high density. This is a patient who is most likely anticoagulated with, um, um, with a high amount of bleeding because of the anticoagulation. This is an interesting case of a patient who uh, was not administered oral contrast, and I show this to remind you to, that if you see high density fluid in the colon, Make sure the patient was given oral contrast because it, in a patient with GI bleeding, it may be hemorrhage. And in this case, there was a bleeding duodenal ulcer. You can see a hematoma in the duodenum, and all of this high-density fluid was actually blood. The patient went to endoscopy, and it could not be controlled endoscopically and actually had to go to interventional radiology for coiling. 
So recognize the appearance of, of hemorrhage on a pre-contrast scan. It's seen as higher density than enhancing organs. And on a post-contrast scan, it's, it's isodense to muscle. Other causes include um, tumor, as in this case of a large pelvic tumor with active bleeding. Uh, one important finding described in the literature is the sentinel clot that is seen the highest, highest attenuation hematoma is usually located closest to the site of bleeding. So in this trauma patient, we can see that there is splenic rupture with multiple pseudoaneurysms as well as a liver laceration, and the active bleeding was actually coming from the liver. Another example of traumatic um, active hemorrhage from a horseshoe kidney with a large surrounding hematoma in this patient who had undergone a recent hepatic procedure you can see that there's active bleeding from the liver capsule and the MIP image on the right actually shows the feeding artery um, a patient with large pelvic metastasis and abdominal pain and dropping hematocrit you can see active bleeding from the tumor this often occurs when the tumor invades the bowel and then finally a rare case of hemorrhagic cholecystitis with active bleeding into the gallbladder. So in closing, it's really important. We've, we've, we've taught our, our uh, technologists to make sure that there's no suspicion for bleeding in designing the protocol for the ER patients. They double check, is there any concern for GI bleeding, in which case we do not want to give oral contrast. We use water. Look carefully on the arterial and venous phases. To, for um, arterial pathology as well as venous thrombus, and the MPRs are really essential for diagnosis in these cases. Thank you very much.